Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. My name is Adam. I'm the lead pastor here at Oasis Church, and it is great to be with you today. Whether you're here in the building, whether you're over at MP1, or whether you're joining us online, it is so wonderful to be together today. You know, Woody Allen, the famous filmmaker and actor and comedian, he once said this. He said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. If you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. Now, I'm not sure if this is theologically accurate, but it does reflect something that is generally true. Life doesn't always go to plan. Life often doesn't work out the way that we want it to or the way that we expect it to. I remember the first time that I learned this harsh lesson. I was in year seven or year eight, and a friend invited me to go to Dreamworld with them for the day. And they invited me to go on a school day. And mum and dad said, yes. And so I'd never been to Dreamworld before, and I was super excited, and the day came, and they picked me up, and we set off for the Gold Coast. Now, we made it as far as Albany Creek, <laughs> before a car ran into the back of our car. Apparently, the damage was severe enough that we couldn't keep driving, and our trip to Dreamworld was over before it began. I was devastated, but to make matters worse, by the time I got home, it was still early enough in the morning. <laughs> you know how this sad story ends. I had to go to school. I learned a harsh lesson that day. Life doesn't always work out the way we want it to. I wonder if you have learned this lesson. Because the reality is, we don't know what's coming. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's around the corner. If you haven't yet learned this lesson, then you will someday. As a church, we've experienced this reality in the last few months. Shock cancer diagnoses. Dirk's tragic accident. It's a reminder that we're not in control. And the question is, when our world shakes, when our lives feel unstable, when our future feels uncertain, where can we find security? Where can we turn for refuge? What about you? Where do you turn for refuge? To put it another way, where is your happy place? Where do you feel content and secure and safe? For some of us, it might be in front of the TV, or, or it might be in the pages of a book, or it might be in your garden, or at the gym, or in the caravan, or at work, or at home. For others, it might be a bottle, or some pills. It might be sex, or pornography. It might be your superannuation balance or your investment portfolio. We all turn to many different things and we all look to many different places for safety and security and refuge. But today on Easter Sunday, we are going to turn in a different direction. 
we're going to turn to Psalm 16. And Psalm 16 is going to turn us to God, where we can find true refuge and lasting security. Now, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're new to church, and we're so glad to have you with us today. And maybe you're wondering, what's a psalm? Or if you can see the the word on the screen, maybe what's a psalm? It's a strange word, isn't it? It's not one we use in everyday life. Basically, a psalm is a poem or a prayer. And there's a whole collection of them in the Bible. And they were all written before Jesus arrived on the scene. And this particular psalm, Psalm 16, it was written by a man named David. Now, David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. But David actually helps to prepare us for Jesus. His words point us to Jesus because ultimately they're about Jesus. And this is why we're looking at Psalm 16 on Easter Sunday. It's not exactly your normal Easter passage, is it? But it's the perfect passage for Easter. In fact, if we turn to Acts 2, which was written after Jesus died and had been raised to life and returned to heaven, we see Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he stands up and he gives the very first Christian sermon. He's effectively talking about the reality that Jesus Christ is risen. And what does he preach on? Psalm 16. His point is that Jesus is risen and he turns to this psalm. Because what this psalm tells us is if we want to find true refuge, if we want lasting security, if we want solid hope, it will only be found through the events of Easter. It will only be found through the resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn to Psalm 16 together. And what we see in this psalm is that God gives us refuge in two main ways. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. God gives us satisfaction in life. Now, it was all the way back in 1965 when the Rolling Stones sang, I can't get no satisfaction. They sang these words over 50 years ago, back when Keith Richards was still in his early 90s. (laughs) He's looking pretty good for 140. But these words are still just as true to this day. They've always been true. This is the universal human pursuit, the search for satisfaction. And Psalm 16 speaks into this search. It basically says there are two main ways that we look for satisfaction in life. There are two paths that we often take. The first path, unsurprisingly, is the path that leads to God. This is the path that David found, and we'll talk about this more in just a moment. But there's another path that David gives us in this psalm. And I would say this is the more popular path in our day. It's right there in the middle of verse 4. David says, those who run after other gods. Those who run after other gods. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Those who run after other gods, this isn't what most Aussies are doing. I mean, haven't you seen the latest census results? Most Aussies, or more and more Aussies, identify as nuns. They identify as having no religion. Most Aussies are not running after other gods. Most Aussies just aren't interested in gods or any gods. But I would say not so fast. You see, even in David's day, when Psalm 16 was written, most people believed in many different gods. There was a god for just about everything. A god of wealth, a god of beauty, 
a God of fertility, a God of war, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, today, we don't believe that any of these gods actually exist, but we still run after every one of these things. We still desperately pursue wealth and beauty. We still desperately chase after sex and and popularity. Just look at the way that we spend our money. Just look at what fills our news feeds. Just look at what we watch for entertainment. We might not have a God of wealth or a God of beauty or a God of sex, but we still treat these things as gods. We want them. We need them. We look to them for security. We think that they'll give us satisfaction. And the question is, how is that working out for us? Is that where it's actually leading us? Are we a satisfied people living in a satisfied world? Well, here's where David says this leads in verse 4. He says, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. David is saying, if you run after these other gods, if you chase these lesser things, it might be nice for a little while. It might be satisfying for a little while, but eventually you'll suffer because eventually you'll lose them because eventually they will slip away from you. Everything in this world is slipping away from us. I mean, even if you get what you're running after, the body that you want, you become super wealthy, you get the grades, you get the promotion, you get married and have kids, whatever it might be for you, if it's anything other than God, it will eventually slip away. Your good looks will fade, or in my case, never appear. (laughs) Your athletic ability will diminish. Your mind will slow down. Your body will stretch out. Your kids will move out. Your relationships will change. You'll be replaced at work. Your wealth will be left behind. And eventually, you'll be forgotten. I mean, can any one of us name the names of our great-great-grandfather or great-great-grandmother? Probably not. Welcome to church, where we love to make you feel good. (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to depress you, but the reality is that everything other than God in this life, everything which is not God in this life, it can and it will be taken away from you eventually. No one has put this better than the late author David Foster Wallace. He wasn't a Christian, but here's what he said. He said, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Now, this is basically what David is saying in Psalm 16. 
Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. And this is the path that so many take. But thankfully, it's not the only path. There's another way, and this is the path that leads to God and the path that leads to satisfaction. This is the path that David has found. Just look at some of the phrases that we read there in Psalm 16. I mean, David has found safety in God, verse 1. He's found delight in the people of God, verse 3. He's found contentment in God, verse 5. He receives guidance from God, verse 7. And he experiences joy in God's presence, verse 11. Look at what he says there. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. They are the words of a satisfied soul. According to David, this is the pathway to true satisfaction. It's found in the God who made you and loves you. But the question is, how can I get on this path? What does it actually look like to walk on this path? Is it enough to to pray a prayer? Is it enough to be baptized as a baby? Is it enough to, to come to church on Easter? Well, notice what it looks like for David. It's it's very intentional. It's very deliberate. Here's what he says in verse 2. He says, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. There is nothing good beyond you. Same thing he says in verse 5. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You are everything I need. You are everything I want. Do you notice how deep this is? This is more than just intellectually believing in God. This is more than just praying a prayer one time. This is more than just even attending church occasionally. This is trusting God with your whole life. This is knowing God in every area of your life. This is saying to God, you are my meaning. You are my joy. You are my satisfaction. You are my everything. This is an attitude which says to God, God, I'm coming to you not just to get things from you, I'm coming to you to get you. You're the goal. You're the prize. You're the gift. And this is so important to point out because it's possible to believe in God. It's possible to come to God, but only to get things from God. I think a classic example of this is Antonio Salieri in the play Amadeus. If you haven't seen it or heard of it, Salieri is a a young composer in the 1800s. And early on in his life, early on in his career, he makes a bargain with God. He says this, he says, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. And Salieri begins to fulfill his vow. He he keeps his hands off women. He works hard at his music. He teaches other musicians for free. He helps the poor as much as he can. And his career seems to be going okay. He believes that God is holding up his end of the bargain. But then a man named Mozart comes along. 
Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And his musical gifts go way beyond Salieri's. In fact, they seem to be given to him by God himself. His middle name, Amadeus, actually means beloved by God. And eventually, the fame of Mozart, as we all know, goes way beyond Salieri's. And yet, Mozart couldn't be more different to Salieri. Mozart is vulgar, he's selfish, and he's a womanizer. And it leads to a crisis of faith for Salieri. Here's what he says. It was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart indulging his in all directions and no rebuke at all. And eventually Salieri says to God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Now Salieri came to God. He believed in God. He even obeyed God. He didn't sleep around. He helped the poor. But why did he do it? Not to please God. Not to know God. He did it to get things from God. To manipulate God. He did it for himself. And Psalm 16 is saying to us, if we want to find satisfaction in God, we can't simply come to him to get things from him. We must come to him to get him. We must give our whole selves to him. Now, maybe you're wondering, but why should I give myself to God? How can I know that it's safe? How can I know that God is good? Because sometimes when we go through hard things in life, we wonder, does God really care? Is God really good? Can I really trust him? And this is where Easter is so important. Easter shows us that we can give ourselves to God because God has given himself for us. This is what Easter is all about, God giving himself for us. I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. He died for our sin, for my sin. He died to defeat our enemies. He died to secure our salvation. He did it all for us so that we who had run away from God could be brought home to God, so that we who were enemies of God could be made children of God. And if the cross is how far God would go for us, if the death of Jesus is what God would do for us, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can trust him. We know that he is good and we can give our whole selves to him. You know, there's that old hymn that says it this way, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And this is what leads to satisfaction in life, to receive this divine love. It's the first way that God offers us true refuge. It's satisfaction in life. But it's not the only way. If it was the only way, it wouldn't be enough. Because what good is satisfaction in this life if this life ends in death? And this is why Psalm 16 goes on to tell us that the really good news of Easter goes on to show us that God also gives us deliverance in death. Now, death, of course, is our greatest enemy. 
Death robs us of everything we have in life. Most importantly, our relationships. You know, I've lost three of my four grandparents in the last few years. Can no longer enjoy relationship with them. I have memories of them, but I cannot spend time with them. And this is what death does. It rips apart. It's our greatest enemy. But here in Psalm 16, David seems confident that for the believer, death will not have the final say. Look at what he says there, verses 9 and 10. He says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. David is saying the grave is not going to be the end of the line. Death will not have the final say. I will not be abandoned by God. My body will not decay. Now, there have been a few people throughout history that have tried to prevent the process of decay. In fact, if you go to Hanoi in Vietnam, you can join the massive queue to look upon the preserved corpse of Ho Chi Minh, the revered leader from the the 1900s. You can do the same for Lenin in Moscow. But this isn't what David is talking about. He's not talking about mummification. He's talking about resurrection. He's saying, I'm going to be raised. My body is going to be raised to life. That's a massive claim, isn't it? How can David be so sure? Or maybe the more important question, how did it work out for David? And the answer is, it didn't. David, a few years after writing this psalm, he died, he was buried, and he remains buried. To to put it really bluntly, his body decayed. And so how can we believe what he's saying? How can we trust this claim in Psalm 16? And the answer is relatively simple. This claim wasn't about David. David was speaking about someone else. David was talking about someone to come, the truly faithful one. He was talking about Jesus. This is what Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2, which was thousands of years after David wrote Psalm 16. He says, you can look it up when you get home. He says, this promise was not about David. David's body has decayed. David's bones are still in his tomb. Now, this promise is about Jesus. God did not abandon him to the grave. His body did not see decay. He was raised to life. See, Psalm 16 is about Jesus. It's about Easter Sunday. God raised Jesus from the grave as he promised he would thousands of years earlier. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, this is really good news for Jesus. He was resurrected. His body did not see decay. But what about David? What about us? We still die. We still decay. How is this good news for us? You know, in another part of the Bible, it describes the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a great harvest. Jesus' resurrection is the first of many resurrections to come. He is the pioneer. He is the trailblazer. And if we trust in him, we too will be raised like him. He says it very simply in John 14. He says, because I live, you also will live. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, he has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. 
Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. And the question is, have you stepped through the door? If you do, everything changes. I mean, what would change in your life if you believed that the resurrection of Jesus is true? What would change in your life if you believed that your resurrection is assured? It would change everything. It would change the way that we attend funerals. We have Dirk's funeral on Tuesday. And we're going to mourn his loss. We're going to grieve, but not without hope. Because we know that Christ has been raised. And we know that Dirk will one day be raised along with all whose faith is in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection, it would change the way that we live our lives. We're not going to desperately chase after other gods. Beauty and wealth and sex and possessions, they're good gifts from God, but they're not God. And so if and when we lose them, we're not going to lose ourselves. We're not going to ultimately be shaken. Jesus' resurrection is going to change the way that we face adversity. When our world shakes, when our lives feel unstable, when our future looks uncertain, when life doesn't work out the way that we planned it, we know it's not the end of the story. And we know that there's one with far greater plans than ours. And we know that he is at work for good for those who love him. And so I began the sermon with a quote from Woody Allen. And I want to end with another one. Woody Allen said, the future is not what it used to be. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that is true for you. The future is not what it used to be. It once was death and darkness and hopelessness. It is now life and light and love because you have lasting security, you have true refuge, and you have solid hope. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that because the resurrection is true, our worst day is in the past and our best days are still to come. Thank you that because the resurrection is true, even when everything around us is shaking, we know that we will not ultimately be shaken. We know that not even death can separate us from your love. Lord, if there are those of us listening right now that have never placed ourselves into the hands of Jesus, never given our whole selves to you, we want to respond in that way this morning. We want to say all other ground is sinking sand, but you are our firm foundation. So Lord, Thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to live our lives in light of what he's done. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.